0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Do you ever wonder if if anyone really knows what you're going through? Do you ever wonder if someone notices you? maybe in the mundane day in and day out of life where everything seems the same you wonder does it really matter is there really significance in what's going on in your life or maybe there's a situation in your life that you wonder if there's if there's hope you don't know the future but there's something you're anxious about in the future something you're waiting for and it's been so long you wonder does god hear maybe you're there's something medically or spiritually you're struggling with you're not sure or maybe sometimes you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling you're wondering if if they do anything i've been there you try to pray but you, you can't even hardly pray sometimes it's you just you just groan in this world of sin. Maybe you feel trapped by where you are in life. Maybe there's a particular sin that you feel like is enslaving you and you can't get victory in this sin. And you wonder if you can ever be truly free from this sin in your life. Ever feel convicted and inadequate before a holy God? I've felt that very much this week, even this weekend. Especially in light of what we're going to look at here today, I want you to turn to Exodus two and Israel in Egypt was undoubtedly wondering many of these same things. They, they were feeling worse. They were wondering, and the context is Moses is a faraway wandering shepherd. He's been in a lowly, mundane job for 40 years, a a lonely and, and lowly job. Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. We're going to see the answer to those questions that we wonder about. We're going to see that God knows. God notices. God helps. And we can hope in Him, even when... We might have groanings that are too deep for words. God is at work and He truly redeems. He truly sets sinners free. And whether it's in a dry desert far away like Moses was or in the dark times of suffering like Israel was in Egypt, God is at work and He is going to respond to His people's cry. And as we look at this passage... The first part of Exodus 2, the first 22 verses, God is not mentioned. But I want you to listen now for God as I read, beginning in verse 23. Exodus 2, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord... Appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, this is Moses, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he, this is God, Said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, God says, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. This is the word of God, and this is a turning point in the narrative now, where God, by, by his title, by a personal title, or by a pronoun, is referred to 24 times after his name isn't mentioned at all in the the prior 26-some verses. This is a big point. This is a big turning point. And before we look at this, we need to come to this big God in prayer and ask for His help. Our Lord God, You are holy. And we are not. I am not. But Your Word is holy, and so I pray that You would help me to handle it rightly and reverently. Lord, that you would give us holy fear, that you would give us faithfulness, that you would help us to approach you with care, knowing that you are the God who cares and you are the God who comes down to save. We call on you. We ask for your help in Christ's Holy Name. Speak, O Lord. We pray. Amen. Dennis Prager has written a Jewish commentary on the Torah in a volume on Exodus where he quotes a rabbi who points out that when God first comes, his people when he's going to deliver them. He doesn't first appear in fire on top of a mountain or even on top of a great big tree. He appeared, and it's significant that he appeared in this lowly, small bush down to earth. It was an everyday bush. It was a very unexpected way that God would come down to earth on man's level. He's the God of the mundane and everyday And he says the burning bush has long been the most famous symbol of the Jewish people. So you can go to modern Israel, but you can also go to synagogues and places where Jews gather all around the world. And there's often this symbol in some way of the burning bush. In fact, I saw an entire synagogue that was designed and structured architecturally like a burning bush. And it would light up at night and it would look from a distance like a burning bush. And, and the reason that symbol is used is because like the fire here that is burning and, and not consumed, the, the people of Israel have, have gone through much suffering and much affliction Throughout their years, the fires of affliction, but they have not been consumed and destroyed like a lot of those other ites that we just read about. You don't meet those people here anymore today, but there's Israelites here today. And In Deuteronomy 4 verse 20 says to Israel, God brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. So in in the, the same books in the Torah, God describes his people as in a, a furnace of, of suffering in, in Egypt But it's a furnace where they're being refined and the Bible says to God's people passing through trials, the flame shall not consume you. He says through Isaiah 43 and and through Malachi, I the Lord do not change, therefore you are not consumed. And the prophet in Lamentations, Jeremiah says it's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Consumed it's because of his mercies that are new every morning. He said that when when their people had been decimated again in the affliction of a Babylon. And and we sang about this just a little bit ago. When through fiery trials our pathway shall lie, God's grace all sufficient shall be our supply. But as Saints of the Lord, that song says God's design is like gold. To refine his people through the the fire are refined even as they're not consumed 3,000 years later this burning bush symbol became the iconic image of the suffering and persecuted church as well as the gospel was being recovered and and religion was coming against it in, in the 1570s the French Protestants who were seeking to be true to these very truths behind me, Scripture alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, for those convictions. They were being killed. They were being slaughtered by the the Catholic authorities in, in France. And the French reformer John Calvin... Had written, And this, this came into their mind as they're thinking about their, their symbol, how the church is often in the fires of persecution. But he says it's kept by God from being consumed to ashes, but it's sustained not by its own power. It's being sustained by the presence of God in the midst. And so in 1583, the Reformed Church of France met and they chose for their official seal, as they were choosing, what, what do we want to unite our, our movements in our churches. This is the, the symbol. This is the modern version of it. The original had the word Yahweh in the middle and it had Latin written around the edges. But these, this is the, the church of France with the words of Exodus 3, verse 2, and, and the phrase of being burned yet not consumed. That was the image that sustained them. And, and all around Europe and other places where the gospel was was taking root in the Reformation... Even the seed, uh, the martyrs, the death of martyrs became the, the seed of the church. The gates of hell could not prevail against the, the fiery uh, persecution that was coming against them. And so some 100 years later, the burning bush began to be the, the symbol also of the church of Scotland. Also they're surrounded by the Latin phrase of, about being not consumed. It also became part of their visible communion Tradition. Even as we're having communion here today, every time they would take communion, they would see this, this symbol even on their, on their tokens. And the burning bush is also on the official crest of the Presbyterian Church of, of, of Malaysia and New Zealand and Ireland, uh, different versions of it, and and all around the world in different parts of Australia, Canada, Africa, and Asia. In the Reformation Study Bible, some of you have one of my favorite study Bibles. It has on the, on the, the newer editions of it, the, the cover has this burning bush as a, as a symbol. And I, this is what I read from the Ligonier website. This emblem links a long tradition of Reformed believers who have embraced and found comfort in that image. That God is with His people and that God ultimately sustains them through trial. I embrace and I stand in that image. And as I've been reading more and more about this, I think we need this image burned in our minds as well, that we would find comfort, that we would find sustaining grace and power and presence as we see this God. And the reality is none of us can see God the Father and live. And yet when God chooses to reveal Himself, you think of at Pentecost as God the Holy Spirit comes down in tongues like flames of fire, and, and Jesus also in Revelation, when John sees the last image of, of Jesus, he has eyes as flames of fire. This is where the image begins here in the beginning of the Bible. That God is this consuming fire. He, he's dangerous to his enemies and he's, he's dangerous to irreverent worship. But he is also gracious as he speaks to his covenant people. And we're going to see that in this passage as well. To his beloved people, his, his love is, is, is continues to burn for them, and it doesn't go out, and it never runs out of fuel, and its fuel is not dependent on anything of this earth. There was nothing that was sustaining this fire from this earth. This was representing God's own attributes. But also remember, you don't play with fire. Right, kids? Hopefully all of you kids have heard that. You don't play with fire. We need to take it serious. We need to take God serious in His holiness, and we need to handle His word with care. So the big idea of this section is God's servant needs to see who God is and respond rightly. And then the first point that we'll see in this passage is God is holy, but He graciously speaks. We should fear Him. And let me give you some biblical theology context. The The Bible starts with this lush garden where God is in the midst. It even uses that language. Then sin comes into the world in chapter 3 of Genesis. And a curse brings thorn bushes and briars and barren desert away from that that garden place. As man is sent out and, and work is going to be hot and it's going to be Hard. I mean, we're, we're going to feel the effects of, of the sweat of the brow later today, aren't we? Some of us already have today. That, that's all part of the, this cursed world. But, but most significantly, as they go out from God's presence, there's an angel that appears. is an angel from the Lord, and he has this flaming, fiery sword to to warn and to to prevent man from coming back into god's presence where it would not be safe for him to be in god's presence that he's not allowed anymore because of sin and that's genesis 3 this is what we read in exodus 3 verse 2 look at verse 2 of chapter 3 the angel of the lord appeared to him that's to moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of of the bush and so the An angel of the Lord comes again, and there's flame, and there's fire again in the the midst. And in verse 5, Moses is told, don't come near, it's holy ground. It's not safe for you to come near to God's presence now. It's holy ground, and it's holy because God's presence made it holy. It wasn't holy the day before. It's not holy now if you could find this place. People claim they've found this place, but we, we don't know where a lot of these events exactly took place, but it's not holy and sanctified sand here. It was holy at this moment because God's presence came down and made it holy, and His presence also later in the tabernacle would, would make it holy. It was, again, this, this fiery-type Shekinah glory that would come down into the most holy place, but even in the, the holy place outside of there, there were these flames of fire that they needed to continually keep the lamps burning all around God's presence again, I think signifying God's continual holiness and continual burning, and it is not going out. I read a book this week by R.C. Sproul called Moses and the Burning Bush. And he says this about Exodus 3 This is all about the holiness of God. It was holy ground because at that point an intersection between heaven and earth occurred. At the burning bush, it was earth-shattering, and this was a a moment in biblical history when Moses encountered the presence of God at the burning bush. This is a a watershed episode episode where he is not only for the life of Moses. This is a a, a monumental change and a monumental moment, not just for the history of Israel as well as Moses, but for the entire world. This is a huge moment here. We need to see and. R.C. Sproul said, One of the church's biggest problems is that we don't understand who God is. So when he started Ligonier Ministries, someone had come to him at some of their early meetings and asked him, What do you think is the greatest need for Christians in this day and age? And without missing a beat, he said, "The, The greatest need that we have is to know who God is, to find out really and fully who God is. Because he says, I think the greatest weakness in our day is the virtual eclipse of the character of God. This is what A.W. Tozer said decades earlier in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. If you want to read a, a book about... God being holy, the knowledge of the holy. But he says this near the very beginning. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th centuries, so this is the 1950s, that view of God is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God, amounting to a moral calamity. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. And he says the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence has caused us to lose our spirit of worship and lose our ability to to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. He says those words, be still and know that I am God have, have gone away, and he said this long before many of the distractions we have that make us hard for us to be still and, and know that he is God. Tozer said, the decline of the knowledge of the holy, that's where his book comes from, the decline of the knowledge of the holy, he says, has brought our troubles. What does God's holy word say about this subject? It says, without holiness, no one We'll see the Lord. That's Hebrews 12, verse 14. We need to understand holiness. We need to have holiness to even see him. And so what does holiness mean? It means to be set apart, to be utterly distinct, to be altogether different. It speaks of God's purity. Later in Exodus 15, they're going to worship him and they'll say, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? There's there's no one like him. There is no other. You can't compare him to anything else, this holy God. And when we begin to compare him to anything else, we're falling short. So Moses is being impacted by this. You notice Moses doesn't come casually. He doesn't come flippantly into God's Presence. when he realizes what's happening and who he's speaking to, he reverently removes his shoes because that's what he was asked to do and that's what he didn't want to contaminate. God didn't want him even to, to bring the, the dirt from anywhere else into this holy place and, and that tied in later with, with, with the tabernacle. It needed to be pure purity in, in approaching. And here's what verse 6 says. Moses hid his face Because he was afraid to look at God. Another passage, looking back on this, says, Moses trembled and he did not dare to look. That's holy fear. That's a healthy trembling. Fear and trembling is something that the New Testament repeats as well. That was Paul's heart even as he... He ministered to the Corinthians. But the fear of the Lord throughout the Bible is where it starts. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of worship. Later on with these very people here in the passage, God's presence is going to come again in the midst of fire to all of God's people. And they are all going to fear. They're all going to not want to look. And they're not even going to want to hear. They're going to say, Moses, you talk to us because we're afraid even hearing God speak we might die. Hebrews 12 says, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then the end of Hebrews 12 says this, Let us then offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's Hebrews written to New Testament Christians, that's not just for the Old Testament. We need to come with reverence. We need to come with awe. We need to remember that God is a consuming fire. We're called to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're called to take time to be holy. Be holy as He is holy is also a New Testament command. As we think about the scene, I'm trying to imagine a modern American Asking Moses later on this day, hey Moses, what did you get out of worship today? Uh, Moses might not have understood the question well, but he might have said something like this, well, uh, one thing is I was able to get out of worship alive, so, so that, was a, that was a good day. I, I, I was able to get out of worship alive before a holy God, but there weren't friendly people there. The temperature wasn't right. It was actually pretty hot. There was definitely no air conditioning. There were no donuts, no coffee, no kids' programs. And it smelled literally there. There were sheep all around. I certainly didn't get to hear the music the way I like or at the volume I prefer. And there weren't any of the old hymns from back in Egypt, you know, real worship. But to be honest, I didn't see a lot because my face was down, but the speaker was on fire. <laughs> I heard his word. I heard the very word of God. And and you know what? I was able to get out of worship alive. So that's what I got out that I got out. And I'm still uh, breathing. I think if Moses heard the way sometimes our, our modern consumer world would speak of worship, I think he would want to smack us with his staff. But I fear we don't fear. I fear I don't. Fear as well. And if we really encounter the same God, the one who's the same yesterday and today and forever, this holy God, when people encounter this God in Scripture, it is life-changing. It impacts them, and it's not about them. And I think that's what Moses would, would have said you know, it's, it's not about me. It's about a, a holy God. It, all that other stuff doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's about a holy God. It's about we need to hear God. We need to be changed by something He says. Not about my preferences. It's about His person. This was life-changing for him. To hear God speak His very word. To know this holy God also graciously Speaks, And I want us to see some of that in verse 4. As God begins to speak, he calls out, Moses, Moses. Now, a name like that isn't repeated very often in Scripture. God doesn't speak to certain people this way. He doesn't say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. But he does say, Moses, Moses. And often when he does this, when the Lord does this, it's to get the attention of someone that he has affection for, often also because they might need redirection. Let me give you some examples. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I'm praying for you, Simon. That your faith will not fall, and that after that you will be able to strengthen the brother Simon, Simon, or I think about Martha. Martha. You are anxious and distracted by so many things. But there's really one thing that is necessary. And in that context, it's to, to, to listen to what the Lord has to say. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I long to to gather you like a like a hen would would gather its its chicks, but you were not willing. There's there's a affection in this language. Or a few years later, he says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And I think that last one is the most parallel to our story here. There's this blazing holy vision that he sees and in in saul's case he looks up and it sees him and he is struck down he falls on his face not only can he not is he afraid to see he can't see for three days that call would change saul's life he would become paul the apostle he would be called in that occasion to go and to minister to go back to israel as a different person to minister to them he would be called to stand before caesar And he would be assured that he would stand before the emperor, the the mightiest man of the mightiest nation on earth at the time. Moses is also hearing Moses. Moses, he's going to be called to to go back to his people as a different person, to, to minister to them and to stand before the mightiest man of the mightiest nation on earth. He doesn't know all that yet, but he hears his name, Moses. Moses. And at the end of verse 4, look at what Moses says. Here I am. Think about that for a moment. Can you think of anyone else who said that when God called them? Here I am. There's probably a number, but I'm thinking of Isaiah. Isaiah sees the blazing holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. He falls on his face. He thinks he's dead. But God graciously speaks to him, despite his unclean lips. Just like he speaks to Moses, besides what Moses would later describe as his uncircumcised lips, he calls him and Isaiah says, Here I am, as God speaks grace to him. Here I am. Send me. Or in Genesis 46, too, Jacob, Jacob And then he tells him that he's going to go into Egypt, but he's going to bring his people back. He's calling him to his next mission, and it says, Jacob said, Here I am. Jacob was willing in his old age to go to Egypt by faith because God had called him in that way. God sought him out. Sinners don't seek a holy God. Sinners, since Genesis 3, have been wanting to hide their face from God, hide in a bush, hide their sin But God seeks, he calls by name, beginning with Adam, where are you? He calls out to you, where are you? And he graciously makes his people willing. He changes them as he calls them. This is not just for adults, kids. God calls little kids too in this same way. He's going to call Samuel this way. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, Here I am, basically. Speak, O Lord, for your servant hears. He was just maybe a four or five year old boy. But that's the right response when God graciously calls out to you. Speak, O Lord. Here I am. Speak. I, I'm listening. I want to hear your word. That's what it's about. I hope that was your prayer as, as you sang earlier. Speak, O Lord. As, as we come to you, to to receive food from your holy word. Is, Is that your heart as you open God's word today or tomorrow as we come to his word now? Is that your heart? We need holy reverence, like we sang, true humility. Test our thoughts, test our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Something I've been convicted by, my thoughts and my attitudes in the radiance of God's purity. Lord, test those, refine those, burn away But what needs to be consumed. For Moses, there was grace at work. As another song would later say, grace taught his heart to fear. You're on holy ground. He needed to fear, but then grace, his fears relieved. His fears were relieved when the bush wasn't consumed. He wasn't consumed. It's amazing grace also that we are still alive too with this holy God. This is the one who speaks here in verse 6. And think of this as words of grace. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice the emphasis on God, 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 God. But also, this is covenant grace because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the, the recipients of the covenant promise. But let's remember who they were. They were sinful believers. They were deceivers. They were schemers. Both Abraham and Isaac lied and put their wives in jeopardy, saying, she's my sister. Jacob was famous for being a a schemer and a deceiver. Even stealing his father's blessing and invoking the name of the Lord as he did it. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who God called by name. And God changed them. And he's not ashamed to call them my people. He says, I am their gods. He also says, I am your, your father's God. He's speaking of Moses' dad back in Egypt. And his family is still alive. He's going to find out later. Aaron's going to come in a couple chapters. But he says, I call you. He's calling them by name. And in verse 8, God repeats the covenant grace from our scripture reading earlier in Genesis 15. with. Cliff read there where God's making this same promise about land and, and He's using some of the same language from here and how they're going to be delivered and how many years it's going to be. And then God cuts the covenant and He's talking about the people groups where they're going to inhabit that, that land. It's not going to be in Egypt. I'm going to bring you back to this land. He cuts this covenant with, with animals and the blood is all, is all, is all there. And, and He confirmed it. If, if you were listening carefully, there was a flaming torch that passed through the elements. It wasn't Moses walking with the Lord in some form. And, and the form that the Lord took was this burning, flaming torch passing through. That The animals are cut. The covenant is, is being confirmed here. And God's saying, I am going to do this. You can't. I am. You are not. That's what God is reaffirming here at Exodus 3. Verbally and also visually as again, this flaming torch torch in the midst of this bush comes down to remind him, I am that same God who spoke to Abraham. And you, Moses, you're going to be the one who's going to see the fulfillment of that promise I made and cut and confirmed through fire about 400 years and all of that. That's what you're going to see here, Moses. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses is going to be the one. He's going to hear from the Lord that is going to be used to bring the children of Israel back to the land. Bring the children of Abraham to the land promised to Abraham. But think about the original child of Abraham. Think about Isaac, who's mentioned here in this verse. Isaac had a life-changing encounter. This was an unforgettable experience for Isaac when he was a young man on a mount tied to the altar. You remember that that story where his dad, his dad lifts the knife to to, to kill his son at God's order. You, you can you can believe Isaac would have could have remembered and, and vividly replayed this in his mind over and over again. And what happens is that knife is about to come down. An angel of the Lord, same same uh, angel of the Lord from Exodus three. The angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said. Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am, same phrase, and, and Abraham says, here I am, and, and if you know that story, if you don't know it, read Genesis 22, it's an amazing story, but instead of Abraham's child dying, God makes Abraham turn his eyes over to this bush over here. And, and what's in the bush? There's a ram that is caught in the, in the bush. And he sacrifices now that ram, that life, and instead of his son. Can you imagine Isaac at the end of that seeing the, the ram die instead of him? Because Isaac had been troubled on the way. He didn't see a lamb. He knew they were going to sacrifice. But where's the lamb, Dad? Dad. The Lord will provide the lamb, my son, Abraham said. And and the way he does it is he calls out to Abraham, 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 the double name, the same phrases as Exodus 3. And ultimately in that event, God is showing how he works. God is going to provide a substitute. And ultimately, God is going to provide a substitute for all of us, for all believers of all time. That substitute would be the Messiah that Isaiah would talk about, who would die, He would go as a, as, a, as a lamb before its shearers. He would die as a substitute in the place of all those who would believe. There's, there's this picture again in Exodus 3 with that pattern and the double name again, calling out in the answer, here I am, and, and suggesting that this is another big moment in redemptive history, and it is. And in just a few chapters in in the story of Exodus, we're going to see in Egypt again, there is a, a, a death order towards the sons, towards the firstborn sons. But there is a way that the son doesn't have to die. And that is there can be a perfect lamb that is slain and the blood can cover the doorposts of the houses. This is the, the Passover. And that death order can pass over those who are covered by the blood of that lamb. And this is pointing us to what the New Testament will say, Christ is our Passover lamb. That's what communion is about in 1 Corinthians. That the only way to be saved by a holy God is, is by him graciously providing the blood of a perfect lamb. And that covers us who trust in Jesus. Jesus is that perfect lamb. And it's just marvelous and to think about the gracious way that this book is all one big story and, and, and the blessing that this should point us to as we celebrate the blood of the covenant today. We need to think about this story that we are a part of by God's grace, this holy God who graciously speaks. That's the first point. But we need to see the second point. God is aware and cares and will save. We've seen hints of it already, but he's going to actually talk about how he is aware. He deeply cares more than any person can, and he will save. So we need to trust him. We need to fear him. We need to trust him. Look at Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Notice he says, I've heard Now he says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So so this God is aware. This God acts. This God cares. This God condescends. And he comes down. God has to come down, and he comes down to our level. He is a God of, of the details he knows the details of all the lives that he's going to now intervene for. This God is not blind to our plight. This God is not deaf to our cry. If you've ever wondered that, let this passage show you God is not blind to our plight. He is not deaf to our cry. Even where we can't see what's happening or what he's doing, he sees everything and he is Working. Here's what Psalm 34 says The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry for help. So his, his eyes are on his people. His, his ears are, are there, in tuned to their cry for help. The Lord hears and delivers them. Notice that language delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's, that's what he does. It's a spiritual salvation. It's a deliverance for the, for the brokenhearted. There, there's things of this world that are broken that will not all resolve in this world, but the Lord can deliver us even through that. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him. And David says, he delivered me out of all my fears. So as you see this language of delivering, thinking about the thing, think about things what you're fearful of, what you're troubled about today. Think about what is on your heart, your afflictions, and know that the Lord can deliver you from that fear, can help you to trust Him. And that's what Exodus 3, verse 9, He's going to do. Exodus 3, verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression. Remember the theologian Bette Midler? She had a song a few years ago. God is watching us. What you guys don't want to say it, but you know it from a distance. And it's not a good song, or at least that line's not very good. But but God is not watching us from a distance, like far away. He is up close. He is personal, as the the language that he's being used here. It's it's not like some earthly ruler or leader who who you know delegates to his lower level staff the concerns of those. People, those little concerns, or all those people out there, you know, I can't like hear what everyone has to say, so I'm gonna delegate you guys deal with that. That's not how God is. He's not sitting in a distant office just making decisions and writing bills and vetoing them or not, and not caring about the, the people who he doesn't really know what they're going through, doesn't see them or visit them. God is not like that. He doesn't see affliction or oppression, even just from the outside. He he sees it and knows it from the inside. And if his eye is on the sparrow, I can know that he watches me with even greater care. And that's what he says in verse 7. He says, I know, end of verse 7, I know their sufferings. And if you go back to chapter 2, verse 25, it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew, so his seeing and knowing go together. He doesn't just know about. He knows intimately and relationally and affectionately is is what this word know means, like a husband and a wife. It's used of how husbands and wives know each other in that most intimate way. Some other translations say God understood. God took notice. He was concerned about them. And let me just pause here for a word of application. When you see someone suffer and struggle, do you reflect God to them? Do you let them know you know, you know, sometimes one of the most powerful things you can do is just say, I've had people say this to me, just say, I, I know. I know, and there's maybe nothing else to say, but just, I know. Or maybe you, you honestly are, you, you don't fully know, but you, you could say, I, I see you. I'm aware. I'm in prayer. I care for you, brother, sister. Sometimes less words can be more. To know that someone knows, someone sees, maybe not fully. But I would say to you, who do you need to know to let know that you know that you care? Who's someone struggling you can reach out to? Who's someone that you maybe have thought of in this past month? Yeah, maybe I should reach out to that person Maybe I should text them. Maybe I should encourage them. Maybe I've known that's what I should do. I, I know this person, but I haven't reached out to them and, and let them know, hey, I'm praying for you, and, and I, I, I just want you to know that I, I love you, I'm praying for you, and I want to urge you to, to the Lord and urge you to his people. If you haven't done that and, and you've, you've thought about that this past month, let me urge you to, to reach out to brother or sister struggling or in sin, or maybe you haven't seen them for a while, let them know. Reach out to them. And I think the question also comes up, what if we're the ones struggling? What if we're the ones suffering? This is where we need to reach out. We need to reach out for help. And, and where it starts, Exodus 20, two twenty-three. in the middle of the verse, they cried out for help. It was a cry for rescue that came up to God. It says, verse 24 says, God You can know there's always someone who hears your sighs. Some of your Bibles say they sighed. He hears your cries. He hears what you can't verbalize. He hears groanings too deep for words, and His Spirit helps us in those. He hears the heart cries. So pour out your heart to the Lord. Cast all your cares on Him, knowing that He cares for you. It's not like some people, when they're on their phone that we know that we might try to share something with them. And, and their their ears, there's nothing medically or physically wrong with their ear at that moment, but they're not listening. I mean, this has been me a lot of times. You can have your focus somewhere else, and, and you're just tuning everything else out. I, I can only focus on one thing at a time, and, and I can... I can be really focused on something I'm doing for work or some, something I'm looking at on, on a screen, and I'm o- utterly unaware that there's things happening in the room where my children might even be saying my name. I'm really good at that, but it's not good for my wife or my kids. I'm terrible. I, I, it's, it's terrible how forgetful I can be. I'm I thinking about z- how incredibly prone I am to zone out. Praise the Lord. He is not like that at all. He... He can have a billion things and a billion people before him all at once and he can focus on all of them at the same time. He never forgets his promises. He never zones out. And so when Exodus 2.24 says God truly heard and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob, it's, it's not that he had a moment there where he forgot and now oh yeah i've got to i got to remember them he never mentally forgets this is bringing him down to our our language but even the the original language here emphasizes that you're bringing something to the forefront to focus because you're about to move to action that's what his remembering is it's it's he he shows favor to them he he acts and actually the first page of the gospel has some of this language Luke 1 says Jesus came and his And in his forerunner to, quote, remember his holy covenant to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him. That we would be saved from our enemies. That's the same kind of language of what's happening here in this passage here. In fact, look at Exodus 2 and verse 17. Where it says, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. This is Moses, but he still looks like and and talks like an, an Egyptian. But they say, he delivered us out of their hand. That's the same phrase in Exodus 3, verse 8, where God... The Savior says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So these shepherdesses thought that this guy, they thought was an Egyptian, Zipporah and her sisters, think he's delivering them out of the hand of their enemies, but God actually says, I am going to come down, I am going to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians. I'm going to truly save them. In fact, Exodus 2.17 uses that word, Moses saved them that's the word later used of of God alone the rest of the time it's used in scripture the Lord saved Israel on that day from the hand of the Egyptians and so what's happening at this well even that language linking it together is is like a, a small preview of salvation at the the water of the Red Sea later God is preparing Moses to be the one who he's going to use to bring his salvation about. Moses is going to deliver God's children. He's preparing him for that. But he's also having him at this well in chapter 2 meeting and marrying the one who's going to deliver his children, Moses' children. And there's this motif or there's this pattern where Jacob also met a woman at a well. You remember that story? I mentioned it last week. She became... His bride, Abraham, when he wanted to get a a bride for his son Isaac, it's at a a well where a woman is found who became Isaac's bride. And so there's this pattern even linking Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Moses now, who in Exodus 2 meets a woman at the well who becomes his bride. But that's not all. There's another life-changer encounter when Jesus comes, and he comes to Samaria. And who does Jesus meet in Samaria. A woman at a well, and John calls it Jacob's well. He's linking it back to that story. And this woman knew of Messiah. This woman believed in him that he was the Savior of the world. And so this woman is one of the earliest ones, believers in in Christ, who becomes a part of the bride of Christ. So it's just amazing to think, again, how the It's all one story and one big drama of redemption. And what's happening in this part of the story is prefiguring and foreshadowing the coming Savior. The one who would deliver us from slavery to sin. The one who would deliver us from the hand of Satan. You know, Moses is a shepherd at the start of this story, but he's he's a bad guy. He just killed a guy just a few verses earlier. We need someone who would refer to himself in John 10 as the good shepherd the one who would call us by name and would save us eternally by his hand, who would lay down his life for his sheep. And who is the great shepherd who's brought up from the dead by the eternal covenant. But you have to cry out to him for help. You have to cry out to this Lord for rescue from the wrath to come. It can be as simple as this. Lord, have mercy on me. The sinner, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Fall on your face before God's holiness. And trust the gracious work of Jesus. Dying as a substitute lamb. This one who was delivered over to be crucified, to die and to rise to deliver us from our sin. And in Revelation 2, when John sees him, this is what he sees and hears. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And he says, I know. I know what you do. I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know your tribulation. This is the Lord who knows, the Lord Jesus, who knows, as Hebrews says experientially, what it's like to be tempted, because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He can know with sympathy and weakness, our weakness. He knows what weakness is like and he knows how to give us grace in time of need. So don't think of this story of the burning bush without thinking of the beautiful Savior who it ultimately points us to. And Isaiah would say of him, in all our affliction, he was afflicted. He remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. He was the man of sorrows who was familiar with suffering, well acquainted with grief. He was oppressed, but he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53. This is the one who surely sees and is intimately acquainted with all our ways. He hears our cries and he answers. And he remembers his covenant. And that's what we're going to remember now in remembrance of him the cup represents that covenant the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and the bread for his perfect holy life given to save and to sanctify us let me pray and let's prepare our hearts for this time our holy and gracious lord we thank you We thank you for your word that you speak to us. That we can see you in some way through Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us all in some way, even now. We pray this for Christ's sake, the the Lamb who was slain and who is risen and reigns. Amen.